This integralism thing, it's not a new thing. It's a kind of revival of a set of ideas and then trying to apply them to modern circumstances, which I think creates a lot of difficulties. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Kevin Vallier, political philosopher and associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, joins Dan Huger to discuss Catholic integralism and his forthcoming book, All the Kingdoms of the World, on radical religious alternatives to liberalism, due out from Oxford University Press in September. What is Catholic integralism, and what is its relation to Catholic social teaching? What is its history and the story of its contemporary rise? How has it caused controversy in the broader church and world? What is the American integralist theory of social change? How concerned should ordinary people be about this movement? And what fuels this sort of deep discontent with liberalism and modernity? The conversation then turns to what a constructive political theological vision would look like and Kevin's future plans. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, librarian and research associate at the Acton Institute. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Vallier. Kevin is the associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, where he directs their program in philosophy, politics, economics, and law. Vallier's interests lie primarily in political philosophy, ethics, philosophy of religion, and philosophy, politics, and economics. He is the author of four monographs, five edited volumes, and over 50 peer-reviewed book chapters and journal articles. His books include Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation from Rutledge, must Politics Be War? Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society with Oxford and Trust in a Polarized Age with Oxford. His new book, next book addresses religious anti-liberalism, such as Catholic integralism. The book, All the Kingdoms of the World, Are Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism, publishes with Oxford University Press in September. And Kevin, we're delighted to have you with us to, to talk about uh, both uh, integralism and sort of uh, overlapping movements and sort of political Catholicism that are emerging and prominent today. Well, thanks so much for having me, uh, as usual. Um, you know, I love the the show because of the person and people who put it together. Uh, so it's an honor to be uh, here with you. Kevin did a wonderful interview with my colleague Dylan Palman on uh, political polarization in the United States and uh, I've, and, and around the world. This is social science data, but that this is a phenomena that's widespread. And uh, we'll uh, link to that in the show notes. So the median Catholic, let's call her Mary, because that makes sense. Maria. Maria. <laughs> even better. She sees problems in the world, these sorts of political polarization issues, social problems of all sorts of kinds. And, you know, she goes to her priest and my guess is, is that her priest would refer to her, her to documents like the Catechism of the Catholic Church, maybe the Compendium on the Social Doctrine of the Church, maybe particularly social encyclicals, beginning with, you know, modern social encyclicals like Rerum Novarum, maybe Centesimus Annes, maybe Frutelli Tutti. Um, these sorts of things make up, along with uh, documents of the Second Vatican Council, other things, modern Catholic social teaching, um, and it represent different ways that the church at various times and places in the modern world has tried to address a whole host of different issues. What's the relationship between Catholic social teaching? How is that related to this new uh, sort of form of political Catholicism or integralism that, you know, is very lively online and is has made some waves in sort of the American conservative movement the last few years. 
So it's a, a big question because, on my view, the, the integralist movement is in some ways uh, reaching back um, to rationales for the way that the Catholic Church related to states um, in the late Middle Ages in Latin Christendom. Um, so the rough idea here or the ideal that developed in the hands of a variety of thinkers, I think Aquinas may be one of them, though one has to be careful about saying Aquinas said X or Y because you'll always find someone who says the opposite. Um, but once you get down to, say, the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation and you're in the 16th, 17th centuries, they're defending a particular form of church-state integration. And it's very important to be clear about what this is. Because a lot of people hear the word integralism, and they don't really know what it refers to historically. Um, so let me just briefly sort of define the view. I take it to hold three claims, two of which most Christians can accept. The first is that God has ordained the state to promote the common good of the community. Okay, very, very common view. The second one is that God has ordained the church to pursue the sort of spiritual common good of the baptized members of the community and to preach the gospel outside of that. Okay, we can, you know, lots of people can accept that. What makes for an integralist, besides their being Roman Catholic, is that they think that the superiority of the church's mission has consequences for how politics should work. So they acknowledge um, that God has directly ordained, say, monarchs or the you know, secular power to govern secular affairs. But sometimes secular policy will bear on the spiritual, yeah. right? For instance, the allowing of, say, the propagation of heresy or, um, or something to that effect. And so where the state's policies bear on spiritual affairs, the church has a kind of sovereignty there where they have what uh, Cardinal Bellarmine called the, the indirect power. So they have a kind of indirect sovereignty where they can direct Christian states to serve as what was often called their secular arm to, say, back the canonical penalties for heresy with civil punishments. Um, so the thought here is that you've got these two polities, the temporal and the spiritual. They're both devoted to different parts of the common good. But because of the superiority of the church, there's a certain kind of integration between the two where the church is kind of the soul and the state is the sort of body. They're united. They have this orderly connection, as Pope Leo XIII put it, um, where the one is kind of animating the other, um, at least on ultimate matters. So that's kind of what integralism is, and it was defended, I think, by a lot of people uh, to various degrees. You know, there's a case to be made. It goes back 1,500 years, but I would say especially since the 11th century. Um, and so what, what happens in the 19th century is there's kind of more articulations of this doctrine, particularly as uh, the popes are confronting the aftermath of the French Revolution um, and a lot of the kind of uh, nationalist movements of the 19th century. And so they, they do kind of like Pius IX, and I would say Leo XIII, are hearkening back to this older arrangement, not so much because they think they're going to get to it, but because they think that's the ideal with which liberalism should be opposed. Um, and there is in the 19th century, up until the 19th century, there is the the, the papacy enjoys temporal power. That's right, the papal states. Yep, the, you have the papal states in central Italy. You have, you know, Pius the Ninth is the is the last pope to uh, enjoy that temporal sovereignty over the papal states. Uh, before uh, before he becomes uh, what, what style this the prisoner, prisoner of the Vatican, Vatican. yeah, yes. in resistance and and Pope Leo the Thirteenth continued this policy of sort of resistance to the Italian Republic, you know, nonviolent resistance. Mm -hmm. um, but that was that was resolved later in the 20th century with the establishment of the modern state. Yes, and we should talk. So, so what I wanted to get, sort of get across to listeners is that this integralism thing is not a new thing. It's a kind of revival of a set of ideas and then trying to apply them to modern circumstances, which I think creates a lot of difficulties. So if you, you go between, say, Leo XIII's encyclical Immortality Day, which I think is one of the clearest statements of integralism, to the Second Vatican Council, it's 80 years. 80 years. And you've got this integralist view that Leo has, and I think one can make the case that his successor, Pius X, also had. I don't think there's any integralist popes after Pius X. Um, and I know some people would say there haven't been any since Pius IX, um, like they won't count Leo the Thirteenth yeah. among them. 
Um, but a variety of different things are happening as a result of the two world wars, where the Catholic Church is wanting to kind of be part of the European project. They're wanting to be part of the universal human rights regime. Um, and they've also just had a lot of people that are experiencing the, the sort of attractions of religious liberty for Catholics, like in the United States. Um, and so at the Second Vatican Council, you know, one of the thoughts was, well, you know, we really do need to kind of update what we have to say to the world about religious freedom. And the idea, I think, of many of the council fathers was that they were recovering the sort of ancient doctrine of religious freedom from the church that the church unfortunately got kind of away from in the medieval period. There were some there who thought, well, you know, maybe this integralist type arrangement uh, was appropriate in the medieval period um, as a way for the church to kind of clean up where the Roman Empire had collapsed, um, but that now no longer really made sense. Um, in a pluralistic world right. in which you have uh, increasing hostility to the church uh, from many states. Um, you well, know, the communists are first among them, right? Yeah. yeah. And so they want to proclaim religious liberty not only to be part of the European project, but also with, you know, uh, more this more forward-looking uh, idea of opposing communism. And in fact, this is actually one of the things that, um, you know, Pope John Paul II was sort of on about. He'd been in, imprisoned, you know, uh, for, for being Catholic and, um, or at least, you know, Catholic activities. And um, what, you, what you start to s see is the church really wanting to c communicate to the world that it's on board with a universal right of religious freedom. And so when that happens, it looks like to most people that integralism is being set aside to the point where it pretty much became the province of the Society of St. Pius X. Those and so, that rejected the teaching of the council. That's right. Um, of which that is a prominent group. Yes. So Archbishop Lefebvre, who founded the SSPX, um, has a book, They Have Uncrowned Him, which attacks Dignitatis Humanae. Um, which is the statement of religious liberty that the council produced. It was the most controversial document of the, con of, of, of the, of the council, um, and it took many drafts for them to sort of agree because a lot of people knew that, okay, boy, there's this history. Um, what do we want to make of that? And there are different factions and they have different theories about what's going on. Um, and that gets us sort of maybe too much in the weeds. But what you end up with um, is what looks like a big discontinuity between the churches like Leo XIII's encyclicals on the one hand and Dignitatis Humanae on the other. Um, and so what you had for a couple of decades was well, you had the people who rejected the council, a, a small minority who were essentially schismatic and they held to integralism and then everybody else kind of you know, just had moved on and set it aside and thought it was an authoritarian relic of the past and good riddance. Yeah. Um, and if you talk to Catholic intellectuals that are, say, over 50 or so, that's still very much their impression. Mm -hmm. But something happened, particularly starting around 15 years ago, that changed things for younger Catholics. And here I'll give you kind of what's both a sociological and intellectual analysis that I think explains the, the, the resurrection of, of integralism among younger Catholics. So um, one of the things that's happening is that um, the Catholic Church, including, you know, Pope John Paul II, thought that, you know, look, they'd made peace with the liberal democratic project. They would be accepted within it and tolerated by it. And when it was starting to become clear, say, on issues of abortion and so on, that the church's positions were not to be respected or taken seriously, many older Catholics just kind of felt betrayed. But they weren't going to go against liberal democracy as such. But it did create a lot of space for younger Catholics to say, well, maybe there was a problem baked in from the start, which there were a number of Catholic intellectuals who were prepared to say, but again, they were kind of more on the, more on the outskirts. But the problem with the sort of traditionalist resistance to liberal democracy um, was that it was antagonistic to the church hierarchy. Yeah. As many, you know, and again, I'm a defender of the liberties of the of Latin mass Catholics. Um, as Eastern Orthodox, I sort of ache for the loss of traditional liturgies or them being restricted in various ways. Um, but their attitude towards the church is very, very oppositional and continues to be. And starting in the early 2000s in particular, there were a, a number of British intellectuals, British Catholics, um, and you know some in the United States that were saying, well, maybe we can accept the council and accept Leo XIII at the same time. Maybe we can reconcile these things. And so there's this extremely talented Catholic philosopher emeritus at King's College London, Thomas Pink, 
um, who proposed a new interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae that proposed essentially to square the circle. He starts developing this reinterpretation in 2008. Um, there's a, a handful of British Catholic theologians and philosophers that sort of come around to the view or share the view. Um, and then a variety of strange events start to happen. There is um, uh, a Cistercian monk uh, and Catholic priest, Father Edmund Waldstein, who's the son of two Catholic theologians. Um, I believe he was born in the United States, but he's in Austria now. Um, and he went to a lecture that Pink gave in 2012 in Austria, Trumau. And, uh, you know, Father Wallstein was already, he was young and uh, maybe 30 or younger then. And he'd been opposed to sort of classical liberal um, Catholicism, in particular sort of Acton Institute sorts. And he came up with a term for them. Uh, he called them Whig Thomists. And he wanted some way to sort of completely distance himself from everything that was sort of classically liberal, economic liberalism, religious liberty liberalism. But Dignitatis Humanae kind of stood in his way. There were some proposed reconciliations he wasn't entirely happy with, but when he sort of saw his way through uh, Pink's reinterpretation, uh, it was kind of, as he described to me, a kind of light bulb went off. And he realized he could reconcile um, his... Uh, respect for the hierarchy and the council with his sort of fierce anti-liberalism. Okay. And so about 10 years ago, he started collecting a variety of younger intellectuals from like Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas College, from a variety of Ivy League institutions, and they started a series of discussion groups uh, on Facebook. Um, and they also, in that process, designed a blog, uh, The Josiahs, um, which is a for the kind of blog it is, very uh, surprisingly well-known in Catholic circles. And they began to evangelize. Um, and they brought in some pretty successful and uh, surprising names. Uh, chief among them, uh, Adrian Vermeule, the uh, uh, protege of Cass Sunstein in many respects, and a professor at Harvard Law. Yeah. Cass Sunstein is famous for his work in the Obama administration and then also as, as a respected academic in his own right. Yes, a kind of fields. center, but a kind of standard secular center left yes. thinker. But Vermeule converted to Catholicism in 2016 and um, started to uh, do movement building with some figures that had been there a little bit longer, like Ladin Papin. 2016 split the early integralist uh, community because the left wing integralists thought that, you know, Trump was just absolutely anathema to everything that they were for. And um, the, the sort of right wing or the Trumpist um, integralists thought that Trump was going to defeat liberalism and that Trump was the only person that could. And so you develop this kind of um, intense support for Trump or at least intense attacks on Trump's critics. So the group split, but the left wing quickly died out. And so you were left with um, the integralists being primarily a movement on the American new right which is not at all how it began. So let's rewind. So we'll go back because the first phase of this, and there's a genuine question here um, because and I think there are several ways that one could approach reconciling the seeming opposition between Dignitanus Humanae in earlier church teaching on religious liberty. And there have been several theologians mm -hmm. who have... Martin Ronheimer. Yes, Martin Ronheimer very famously debated Thomas Pink, and we, I, that's a debate is available on YouTube. That's correct. We'll, that's correct. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Yes, and the, there's a written debate with John Finnis and Pink as well. Yes, yeah. and John, yeah, John Finnis, who is... Uh, uh, the world's leading natural law theorist, yeah. Yeah, at Oxford. Um, and so there is a, a, a serious academic question at the beginning of this, of how do we look at the tradition that comes out of the Second Vatican Council, and how do we look at that and see a continuity with what comes before? Because there's, there's, there's very large differences in the pragmatic way, at the very least, that yes. the church relates to the world that comes out of the council. So how is that theologically reconciled, integrated? Some people will just say, you know, 
uh, mistakes were made and those have been corrected. There are other folks that would say mistakes were made at the council that need correcting. But there are numerous theologians who have made many thoughtful contributions to reconciling those, and mm-hmm. Pink's is one of those. So so what Pink's is is an attempt to reconcile the two in what I call the Leo first direction. Yes. The, the reconciliations prior to Pink, almost all of them were in the sort of Vatican II first tradition. So if you see, it's, it's the the, the way that you go about the reconciliation. So many of them are saying, okay, look, the council says this. How do we understand what the church did in light of what the council has said? Whereas Pink kind of approached things from the other direction, which I think makes sense for him being a philosophical historian of his, his caliber, particularly a, a scholar of the um, counter-reformation theologian Suarez and, and Bellarmine. Actually, many of your listeners uh, won't know this, but he tr- he's the one who translated Suarez's De Legibus for Liberty Fund, about a thousand yes. pages. Um, so, you know, supremely talented. So so the standard uh, Vatican II first-led reconciliations say that many of the church teachings and practices of, like, say, in the late Middle Ages were not dogma. Yeah. That even though they were teachings and practices that held some weight, ultimately they were inconsistent with the early church and the freedom of the Christian is made in God's image. And so the Second Vatican Council was setting aside things that weren't dogma that weren't de fide defined and certainly or, or that even levels of dogma below that. Yeah. Um, and and Pink thinks actually um, the reverse. I mean, he thinks that there are some statements from, say, the Council of Trent and also the high status particularly emphasizes the high, uh, not absolutely top level dogma of immortality day, but he thinks it is something that the church must treat with the same honor as they treat Rerum Navarum. Yeah. And um, and he thinks that's an, an integralist uh, document in a certain sense, and that's 1883, I believe. Um, so he's he's very much starting from the past and is working his way to the present. But Father Ronheimer and Finnis, both in different ways, think that those practices and teachings in the medieval period were kind of departures, and that there were there is kind of some weight to the fact that they existed. Like Catholics have to take that seriously, but ultimately they can be revised. And so, like part of the debate between Finnis and Pink is about whether there's this particular canon of uh, uh, the Council of Trent, um, which speaks to the legitimacy of coercion of the baptized. And it seems, if you take it to be irreformable, it supports Pink. Um, if it's reformable, then then say Finnis is kind of more mainline, much more mainline position. Uh, gets a real boost. So to un- to understand, maybe to tease out the practical implications of this, there is um, in the 19th century in the Papal States a sort of classic case of this that I know you're familiar with. There was a yeah, we got to talk about it. There was a number <laughs> yeah. of years ago uh, a, a big dust up because First Things magazine published a review of a translation of a memoir of of this of this priest. I could. I'll tell the. I'll tell the whole story for you. Tell the story to to let our listeners. Uh, it's amazing. In on this and shocking. Um, and, th- and there's and there's there's some more context that 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 if you don't get to, I'll, I'll fill in on the back end because yeah. the story of the review itself yes. is is a whole other story. But set the historical. Okay. Stage. So 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 one of the things that the papal states is they maintained the Jewish ghettos. I think through their abolition in the late nineteenth century and. Um, one of the things, you know, that was a, a common practice in many cases is that people kind of wanted out of the ghettos would get would get baptized. And there had been controversies about that with the Jewish ghettos for, for actually centuries uh, about sort of the, the relationship between, say, the re- religious liberty of Jews that had been baptized. Yes. Um, and so this was like an ongoing debate. It was something actually that, that, that Aquinas had spoken to, that Scotus, you know, uh, later spoke to. So it's, it, it's a long-running thing. But it came to a head in a very particular case. There was a, a Jewish family that lived in the Papal States. I can't remember exactly uh, which city. I think Bologna. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's right. That's right. Um, I don't know why Ravenna was in my head. But um, so they had um, a, a, a child, uh, a baby at the time, uh, Edgardo Matara. And Edgardo had a Catholic nanny, and he got sick. And so the nanny performed an emergency baptism, um, which makes him uh, a member of the Catholic Church. And Pope Pius IX found out about it about five years later. And um, decided that because Matara's family was Jewish, 
they wouldn't guarantee uh, Edgardo's right to a Catholic education. It was part of the law of the papal states that every baptized Catholic was owed a Catholic education. It was one of their uh, rights. And he felt Mortaras wouldn't uh, honor that right. And so he had Mortara uh, Edgardo removed from his family. Yeah. And he ended up raising the boy as his own. Uh, Edgardo Mortara became a Catholic priest. He died a priest. And, um, but before all that happened, there was a massive international controversy about it to the point where European governments, the French and Italian governments, they even, you even had diplomats communicating about like re, re-kidnapping him. Oh, um, yes. yes. It was serious. It was the Elian Gonzalez of the 19th century. Um, if, for those of you, know, you who remember uh, the Elian Gonzalez case. So, um, so what ended up happening was Mortar wrote his memoirs and was, you know, kind of nice to Pius IX. So about – I think it was about 20 years ago now. I'm trying to remember. There's a Jewish historian, David Kurtzer who wrote a book called The Kidnapping of Edgardo Matara. And what I mean by a Jewish historian, I mean that he was a historian of Judaism yeah. and in Europe. Um, and uh, the book is very well written. And Steven Spielberg and Harvey Weinstein decided that they were going to make a movie about it. And then all the Weinstein stuff happened. So around 2017, when that all happened, there were a number of Catholics that were sort of like anticipating attacks on Pius IX. You know, he's St. Pius IX, so they wanted to defend him. Um, blessed? No, no, blessed. blessed. He's just blessed. Yes. Okay. All right. Sorry. Um, yes. Um, Pius X is yes. beatified, but Pius IX is only blessed. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but nonetheless, there's still great incentive to, de- to defend him. And so there, some people came out with a new edition of Mortar's memoirs. And the American um, periodical, the Christian periodical, but you know, chiefly sort of centrally Catholic and in many ways periodical first things, published a review of the memoirs by an older Dominican priest, Father Romanio Cesaro, I think Cesario, um, in which he sort of defends um, the The bulk uh, of the review of the memoirs is actually an extended argument in defense of... Yes, of what Pius IX did. Yes. Yes. And so what happens um, in that case is it creates a huge conflict among first things readers. A, a number of their Jewish readers um, are just absolutely appalled, like Yoram Hazoni, um, who at the time was one of the people kind of leading the charge against it. Um, but um, what happened was that the Integralist, the new Integralist community, primarily on Twitter, decided that they were going to defend Pius IX. Um, and this was one of the ways they made it on to the public stage. Um, was that they were the ones who, you know, were, you know, willing to, uh, I think in their minds, defend the Catholic Church against all comers. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the important things um, for listeners who, who, who want to dig into this controversy is, um, I believe Mosaic Magazine, ah, yes, Jewish Magazine, very important. published yeah. a, a wonderful review of the controversy which is also a partial review of the book, or rather it, it brings readers' attention to the fact that the English translation was not a faithful translation of the text. And this is not something that— A lot of people the, don't know this part of the story. A lot of people don't know this. Yeah. Um, and it's very important because the First Things Review does not mention this at all. Yeah. And it is very important that Father Montoro's— Memoirs in yes. this that that were being debated this, that this translation was not a faithful translation, yeah. Yeah. and downplayed things in his journal where you know what well, you know he was a lifelong priest, he was you know had many affectionate memories of Pius the Ninth, but there are also things in those in those memoirs about the pain of being separated yes. from his family, precisely. And those things were either downplayed or excised in the translation, um, which should have been the first thing that a reviewer would say. Um, yeah, they but were, instead, yeah. the review the review was was not about the book. It yeah. was about the historical incident. That's right. That's right. That's um, right. That's which right. is sad. Um, yes. Because uh, you know, and and there were scholars that did draw attention to um, the and first things had they, they were at, a lot of people wanted a retraction, 
And I think it was Rusty Reno who said, who, who tried to sort of have it both ways and say, well, you know, you might object, but it's okay. I can't, I, it's been a while since I've read his response, but, you know, he did defend publishing it and he said he felt like whatever the disagreements were that uh, Father Cesario um, understood sacramental realities and the, their power. Um, and so a lot of people feel like, okay, what's happened to first things? Um, that they would stand by this. And that was a sign that actually there had been a lot of sort of movement towards Catholic anti-liberals um, among some at first things. There's actually a lot of controversy, I've, I've been told, uh, among the board uh, there about this review. So that's, I believe, that's 2019 or 2018. Yeah, I have it in the book, The Right Day. Yeah. Um, but it's also around the same time that um, First Things publishes Against David Frenchism by Sarah Bamari. So I have a section of the book I call First Controversies, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is about these two events. Yeah. Um, because Amari is basically being starting to move in this uh, integralist direction. Um, and his attack on David French is seen as an attack on kind of mainline conservative approach to the culture war, um, where, you know, we're not, from, from Amari's thought, it's like, look, we, we have to fight fire with fire. Um, we've got these drag queen story hours going on. We've got to shut them down. Um, they had a very uh, remarked upon debate. Uh, it was widely regarded that French uh, was victorious, but there must have been, what, 30 or 40 or conservative think pieces about it around oh, yeah. that time? No, it, it, it was a it, huge deal. This was my introduction to both David French and Sora Bamari. It was the Amari French debate. I was not familiar with before this debate. That's right. So these happened around the same time and also in the wake of the 2018 publication of Denis, Patrick Deneen's Why Liberalism Failed. And so you have the confluence of these events um, that are putting kind of Catholic anti-liberalism on the table, even though at that time, Deneen uh, was not sympathetic to integralism at all. So there's a, there's a theological project of a certain mode of reconciliation between the documents of Vatican II and the early, earlier history and teaching of the church. There's also a sort of historical project of defending the church against those who they be, uh, certain Catholics believe, you know, uh, against those who unfairly malign the church. But then there's also this political project, um, this sort of activist programmatic project. And we've talked about some of these figures, uh, you know, uh, now uh, first Vermeule, then Amari, and now we're interested in it. We're uh, Deneen is signaling Deneen into this yep. conversation. Yeah. How does he fit in? Because he has a profile. Um, I mean, we're, we're, we're sitting here talking. It's, it's very shortly after the, the release of his book, Regime Change, um, which is sort of a follow-up in, in a lot of ways to why liberalism failed. Because why liberalism failed, while it makes a lot of arguments against liberalism, um, some of those not particularly well historically grounded. Um, most of them not particularly yeah. well historically grounded. Yeah, but it's it's sort of proposed solutions was was not ideological. It was a sort of localism, a sort of um, he thinks liberalism is trying to give this broad kind of social agenda, and that the opposition to liberalism was going to be more humble about what it could accomplish. Um, and we have seen in the new book that's gone a very stark change yes. and a change informed by this sort of political branch, this politically uh-huh. activist branch of it feels weird to say American integralism. I know, <laughs> but, but that's so, what, where it is. <laughs> so, so, so here's how I kind of lay it out in the book. So they're they're the British integralists. And they're about a decade ahead or behind, depending on how you want to put it, um, the, the American integralists. And the British integralists are chiefly interested in the theory and the dogma, and their big worry is about reviving the church. So they, they have a spiritual goal, chiefly. It's not a political project. Thomas Pink does not care about this, uh, the American integralist uh, political goals. But the American integralists following the split after Trump, so this is the Trumpist American integralists, yeah. not the left-wing integralists that go into kind of uh, collapse. Um, their political project becomes, well, <laughs> let's see, 
Um, it becomes um, trying to bring conservatives around away from limited government to the embrace of the administrative state, which it did, the conservative movement had been trying to limit or destroy for decades. And the reason for this was that Adrian Vermeule is one of the great scholars of living scholars of the administrative state, its history, its, uh, its structure, its function. And he's been a big fan of it for long before his Catholicism. Um, and the argument that he's making, particularly in his review of Deneen's first book, Why Liberalism Failed, he's got a, a review in American Affairs called Integration from Within, where he criticizes Deneen's decentralism. He says, you know, look, the state's going to be there. It's going to have an effect. These decentralized communities aren't going to be able to withstand the attack. You have to take over the main institutions. You have to take them back from liberals. Um, at the same time, you start to see Viktor Orban in, in Hungary getting interested in sort of communicating more with American intellectuals, I think in part in light of him sensing uh, uh, changes in the GOP under Trump um, and, and Orban's own changes as well. So you start to get this project of kind of moving away from liberalism, especially classical liberalism, rejecting limited government. Um, wanting the state to be active in promoting the family and fighting the culture war. And they've had some success. Um, I think, you know, there's a number of Republican politicians that have been influenced by them to varying extents. So, you know, my own view is like they've, they've, they've influenced J.D. Vance, the junior senior senator from Ohio, a lot. I think some of their ideas have sort of circuitously gotten through to um, DeSantis. Um, and the thought here is that many of the new right had, which is, you know, we've got to fight the left like Trump fights the left just to be smarter about it. So there is this de the destruction of liberalism and liberal elites, the, their displacement. Um, that's a central part of the project. So you're growing the administrative state, you're taking over, co-opting the administrative state, but using it for sort of Catholic purposes. Um, and that centralist project is that essentially what Vermeule does uh, when he converts, is that he gives the administrative state a new kind of mission. Although I would actually put it this way. I think one reason he admired the Catholic Church ahead of time is the same reason that Carl Schmitt did, was that it was an administrative state of its own. And so, um, and he thinks that when, when liberalism falls apart, and he thinks it inevitably will, that sort of the Catholic Church will be kind of left behind as this state that could have a lot of influence. So this, this brings us back almost full circle yeah. to when we were talking about the rise of, if not integralism, a sort of proto-integralism with the collapse of the Roman Empire. Right. Um, right. So, so Deneen is, is looking for, for history not to repeat itself first as tragedy, then as farce, but first as, as something imperfect and last. Well, this is the cover of the book, right? He's yeah. got the Roman sculptures being kind of decayed and it's beheaded. And this, he's, I think they very much think that they're in a similar position of Christians in the Western Roman Empire before its collapse. That they call it the liberal imperium for a reason. They think the liberal imperium is going to collapse. I think Vermeule's uh, generally his criticisms of liberalism misfire, not as much as Deneen's, but they still misfire. But he has a really interesting article uh, in American Affairs where he sort of outlines this idea where he thinks a little bit about liberalism like Marxists think about capitalism. Liberalism has this inherent sort of liber liberating tendency um, that it's, a, it's, it's, it's sort of pushed by – um, liberals who are, he says, not sort of self-indulgent or whether they're sort of highly ascetic, devoted people to an ideology or religion in essence. Um, and that eventually they're just going to run out of stuff to liberate and they're going to have moved their uh, themselves ideologically and religiously so far away from the American public and, you know, uh, pu uh, European publics as well that um, that the liberal elite will destroy itself. And so the point is to kind of create – uh, an alternative conservative class then kind of move in and become the new elite um, when the liberal elite collapses. So I, I just had a discussion, and this podcast interview is going to be released somewhat later, but I just had a discussion with Jonah Goldberg. Ah, and his, uh, he did a review in Religion and Liberty of regime change. And one of the things that as, as I was conversing with him, I thought, you know, the, the book would be better titled Elite Change. Yes. Because what's argued for in that book isn't so much 
dismantling, say, the structures of the American Constitution, but that stuff, but rather replacing, you know, those who staff the administrative state today yep. with a new counter elite. Yes, um, that's right. That's right. And that's very much, you know, my my read of the the book. It part of it comes from his first things article from some years ago called "Replace the Elite." Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> much more straightforward yeah, title. <laughs> yes. Right. And and what's well, what's interesting about this um, is Deneen. I. It, it, it's kind of a conditional claim where he says, well, we, we may not need to change the institutions if we change the elite. But I think it's clear that he's not holding fast to American constitutional democracy as a fundamental principle. Um, but it, that's just not a direction that he decides to go in the book. But, I mean, ultimately, I think he's come to agree with Vermeule, but even though I think he argued this – uh, himself, that liberalism has this kind of intrinsic instability. And so they both think it's going to collapse, but they have somewhat somewhat different stories. They're, act, they're pretty continuous. But um, yeah, so they both think liberalism is going to collapse. And so one of the reasons I think, you know, they don't advocate violence, I think that not to say that they would under any, uh, for other reasons, it's just to say that they think that liberalism is going to do itself in. And so it's really just a matter of time. They just have to prepare um, and in fact, part of my view of them is that they write these kind of, I think, intellectually light books so that they can keep the price low and make sure lots of young people read them and start to, you know, follow them on Twitter and go to their conferences and stuff. Because I believe after reading them, um, studying their ideas uh, for about four solid years, um, that they really do think liberalism is going to collapse. And they really are trying to create a new generation of American elites that could replace them. I think they're serious. So this is this is I mean the the idea is is sort of laying the groundwork in the in the way that sort of uh, biblical you know, remnant, biblical remnant, or um, revolutionary vanguard in a sort of Leninist sense. That's right. And you have you have, Deneen uses the "what is to be done" language. Yes. So like, so this is uh, I mean, we've had a really great tour so far of sort of the history of this movement, different threads, different sort of preoccupations, uh, also questions about, you know, mobilization, social theory of change, everything. I mean, as I'm sitting here, we've, we've, we're witnessing right now um, many reviews That's of right. Patrick Deneen's regime change coming out uh, critical. From sort of all from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the whole even the Front Porch Republic ideological spectrum, communitarians, yeah. Yeah. libertarians. That's right. It's it's is is this past its shelf life? Is is my question? As I, as I look around and I see sort of the critical response, it seems like there are more and more people who have you know. You know, they're no longer uh, teased by the interesting philosophical questions, but seem to like have actually looked at this long and hard enough to realize that there's not a lot there. Now, part of that might be rhetorical strategy, as you talked about, but it, it seems like that that, you know, is this. Is this something that people should really be concerned about other than protect, potentially radicalization of young people. You don't want, you know, I mean, my great fear with this, my great fear with this is that smart, ambitious young people who love ideas and love history and love theology, you know, they get seduced by this sort of Rubik's Cube. I agree and very much wrote the book with those students, those young people in mind, because uh, what I want to grant to them is that there are some interesting ideas here. Um, but um, the practical political project has just got to go. So, you know, chapter four of the book, I detail, I think, Vermeule's kind of transitional writings, the strategic writings, um, and then just set it, as, set it aside after going through sort of problem by problem. But the, the next two chapters address integralism as an ideal on its own terms and tries to show, that, you know, that, that e even if you could get to the ideal – um, even if you could transition, there would be problems. Yeah. And those are the, the two chapters where I address the, the British integralists because I think there, there really is something uh, deep and interesting uh, going on there. It's ultimately wrongheaded. But um, I sort of see myself as 
trying to try to treat my opponents in the way that my heroes uh, did, like the way that Schumpeter on Marx or, you know, Hayek on socialism broadly um, or Nozick on Rawls, you know, where a classical liberal goes through another set of ideas very patiently, very carefully, um, and just tries to show where the difficulties are. And because, you know, the message I have, and I think, you know, if there's younger people listening is, you know, I want people to be excited about the project of younger Christians kind of rethinking their political commitments from the ground up. I think that's okay. I think I think we should do that um, because this is something that I think each generation of Christians needs to rethink um, so that if we come back around or if many come back around to classical liberalism that um, they know why, right? It doesn't become an ossified dogma. I want to talk about political theology. I want to talk about it with these young people for a long time. For, you know, I'm going to be writing um, more books in this area um, in the future. Um, I've already started on, an, on another one now. And um, so, so the book is supposed to convey, you know, look, this, this American political project, I mean, it, it, it what I call it in the book, I say it's morally infeasible. Like you can get to integralism, but not without violating Catholic moral teaching. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to you, you've got to break some eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you try to follow Catholic moral teaching, you can't get to integralism in a modern state. So that's essentially the critique of the American Integralist Project: is that e- either either you violate Catholic moral teaching or you fail. Yeah. Um, and either option is good. Um, but I th- and I think my argument there is pretty clear. Um, but I do want people to keep asking questions like, well, what is the most Christians can hope for from politics? Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that I always like, whenever I talk about this, I think about, you know, you know, a lot of these folks style themselves as post-liberals. And the 20th century is in many ways the century of post-liberalism because both, both Marxian communism is a post-liberal alternative and so is fascism. These yeah. are both, you know— that had mass movements behind them in the 20th century, incredibly destructive. Um, ultimately, liberalism prevails um, in much of the world, although never all of the world. And we still have corners of the world with various strains of these ideologies as, as live options. Um, when, Where do you think this discontent with liberalism comes from that we we want to return again and look and look into you know what to my mind are many of the darker aspects of the history of the catholic church and look to those as inspiration rather than to look to the teachings of the second vatican council or to modern catholic social teaching where is it that you know liberalism may not have failed but liberalism certainly seems to have have failed some people, or at least people have failed to appreciate liberalism. And I don't think that's entirely their fault. I think that, you know, I look, I look at the world and when I see things like this, I think, you know, how can I take responsibility for it? Um, right. What can I do to share my own understanding, to develop answers that are sensitive to these folks' concerns. So let me um, um, answer your question, but also by kind of looping back to the last one because I didn't answer it fully in terms of the, like, the effect or the, the yeah. results of, of, of the American integralist movement. So one thing is the effect on young people and the political influence that they will have. Um, that's, I think, the big effect. I do think that they are buttressing some of the sort of state-led culture warring uh, in the GOP. But um, I actually think they're one instance of a broader global phenomenon that we've been talking about um, and that you're just beginning uh, to, to open up, um, which is that you know all the kingdoms of the world is on radical religious alternatives to liberalism. Integralism is the focal case, but I actually think it has structural similarities to anti-liberalisms that come from the other great faiths. So I talk about, for instance, um, Islamist anti-liberalism within Sunni Islam, and I talk about Chinese Confucian-inspired anti-liberalism. I I wish I'd been able to go into more detail with a couple of other religions, but, you know, it was just the book needed to be sizable and and readable. Yeah. but one of the things that these three groups all say is they, they say this. They say, first, liberalism said it was going to be neutral between different ways of life. 
It isn't. It couldn't be in principle. It's really just an imperial project. Now, when you look at, say, Hindu nationalism or Islamism or even Chinese Confucianism, like the main kind of leading thinker of Chinese Neo-Confucianism, who wants a Confucian confessional state, Jiang Xing, he blames uh, Tiananmen on, um, on Western ideas. So in India, in China, in much of the Muslim world, the liberal nations were an imperial colonizing presence. And so many of these movements develop in response to say, we've got to recover the beauty of the civilizations that we had, of Islamic civilization, of Chinese civilization, of Hindu civilization. Um, and, you know, to some extent, they put their own mark on what that is, right? Yeah. Um, in a very peculiar way in many cases. Um, but I see Catholic integralism is, is related in a way because there's a sense in which the Catholic Church has also been the result affected by sort of liberal imperialism, at least in its earliest form, because I do think there is a sort of liberalism that we see in the French Revolution. Yeah. There's a certain— The anti-clericalism. Yeah, the, that's yeah. common. And so in many ways, integralism in the 19th century is, is imperialism. You've got Pius IX articulating it, and he's a prisoner, um, essentially. Um, and so I think what unites these projects and what keeps them going is the sense that liberal elites have these sort of very peculiar moral values— and are secular and don't sort of understand what's sacred about the world and they're powerful and rich and they throw their weight around and they have the audacity to lie about it. And so I think that um, that's what's driving religious anti-liberalism in the countries I've mentioned. I think that's what's going on in Hungary. I think that's what's going on in Poland. I think that's what's going on in Russia um, with you know Russian orthodoxy and orthodox anti-liberalism. Um, and I think we're starting to see more Jewish anti-liberalism in Israel. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, this is actually a, a kind of global religious phenomenon, the resistance to a kind of secular liberal elite, um, because there isn't value alignment and there's power inequalities. So how much of this is just, you know, Martin Gurry wrote a wonderful book called Revolt of the Public, in which he talks about how sort of the information age drives popular discontent. He uses, you know, uh, protest movement, Arab Spring. There are, you know, protests in Israel over, over, over real estate prices, rents. Um, and they seem to be just, you know, spontaneous, almost uncoordinated, or at least not coordinated in traditional means, maybe control, you know, coordinated through social media, these sorts of things. And, uh, but they're sort of directionless, is one of his critiques. Is, is this... Is this just a religious, a smaller religious manifestation of that general phenomena? You know, it depends on the country. Yeah. So, you know, you're the sort of expert on Hindu nationalism, um, but I have been doing some reading uh, as of late. And I just finished uh, Savakar's uh, uh, What is a Hindu? Oh, yeah. Or who? Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's old. I also didn't know the founder of one of the founders of Hindu nationalism was imprisoned on suspicion of the assassination of Gandhi. Um, yes. But um, I think they call him Veer uh, in India. This was a while back, though. He died 100 years ago. But you were right, you know, I'm looking into it, that Hindu nationalism has been a kind of slow build. Yeah. And that its power now has been the result of many, many – like several generations of people building this movement. Same thing's true of the Muslim Brotherhood. I didn't yes. really understand the Muslim Brotherhood's history. It's almost like the Boy Scouts on steroids. Like they do all kinds of services for the community. They're just – they're sort of pervasive in terms of their influence. There's a lot of good things that they do. So some of these – uh, movements, I think, have real staying power and, and, and real influence in ways that do resist liberal elites. Yeah, and that have built um, counter-institutions yes. in those societies yes. yeah, over periods of 100 years. Yes. And and so Islamism, uh, various stripes, and Hindu nationalism, I think, are are here to stay. And there's a lot um, that's going to you know shape the world in the, the 21st century. Chinese Confucianism was actually looking like it was starting to rebuild after Mao's uh, anti-Confucian campaigns was trying to wipe it out entirely. Um, but then Xi, uh, Xi, uh, Xi um, sorry, I've got to get the pronunciation right. Um, he has um, basically like been stressing more the Marxism, Leninism uh, part 
Um, so, I, but I really expected that um, a lot of these Confucius institutes all over the world, you know, maybe some of them were spy outlets, but um, but um, that there was a real neo-Confucian revival, and there still is that, particularly in the diaspora uh, Confucian community. So I expected it in China. Maybe we'll see more. I'm not really sure. Um, but so the interesting question is, does it have staying power within Christianity? Yeah. In Protestantism, I don't think anti full-blown anti-liberalism really works. Um, I do think many conservative Catholics have a point that there is a kind of rich continuity between many strands of Protestantism and, and liberals. Even the most anti-liberal Protestants that I in, – in the U.S., I mean the chiefly the um, Christian Reconstructionists, they were big fans of markets. Um, so I think it's harder to find really strident Protestant anti-liberalism. You do have that new Christian nationalism book that's reformed. So the interesting question is Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Do their anti-liberalisms have staying power? Um, I think for Orthodox anti-liberalism, a lot will de- depend on the outcome of the war. Um, if Russia somehow wins, um, the cultural project of the Russian world, I think, will, will get a boost. Otherwise, I think it'll – I mean, just the regime could collapse. Yeah. Um, Catholic anti-liberalism has a very important and very severe problem, which is the popes. Yeah. <laughs> they're not anti-liberal. They're, you might not want to call them liberal, but, but they're not – they don't, do not see the liberal democratic order at all the same way. And in fact, many of them were deliberately trying to build a Catholicism that wasn't liberal but that was reconciled to liberalism within ordinary democratic politics. So there would be Catholic policies that would say, oh, the liberals are going too far in this, that, away, but we're going to play the democratic game. We're not going to we're not going to abolish democracy, say, or restrict it to get what we want. This is the project of, of you know, uh, Jacques Maritain's integral humanism yes. as opposed to integralism. Because yeah. he wasn't an integralist until um, uh, Pope Pius XI condemned the integralist movement in France he was a member of, the Action Francais. Yeah. Um, that was actually almost exactly 100 years ago. I think it was 1924 is the condemnation. Um, and that put that, – that was a pretty serious blow to, to, the, to the movement. Um, so – and then Maritain, so if you read his Primacy of the Spiritual, it's, it's an integralist work. But then a few decades later, you read Man in the State, and it's very much not. Mm-hmm. Um, he does say that there was a sacral age in which it may have been appropriate, but that the underlying rationality of the modern age, the secular age, um, it makes these arrangements, makes means that church-state relations have to change. Yeah, and Maritain, of course, contributes to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's correct, and he was also, I mean, Paul VI was a Maritanian. Yeah. And Pink makes the case it's actually the Maritanians that carried the day and how the church understood Dignitatis Humanae, not the more sort of liberal uh, folks like John Courtney Murray. So Murray would say something like, look, the church should never have been in anything like integralist arrangements. Whereas Maritain would say something like, well, it kind of makes sense that the church was at the time, given sort of what was going on, uh, what the historical conditions were. But it, it, it'd be a really bad idea now. It'd be even immoral now. Um, so it's interesting stuff on Maritain's philosophy of history that I, I, I need to learn more about um, here. But, um, but the problem is we are in this period where Dignitatis Humanae exists. And if you read it, just an ordinary reading, it doesn't really read very integralist. The integralist wants to say, yeah, look, people have religious liberty when they're unbaptized. You know, they can't be forced to stop their religious practices unless those violate natural law. Um, but at the same time, um, if Pink's reading is correct, the church is essentially saying, yeah, everyone has religious liberty unless they're baptized, in which case we have you know, certain powers over them under, under certain conditions. It, it's, not, it's not like, oh, there's this exceptional case and that's mentioned or whatever. No, they just say the human person has a right to religious freedom. That's based on the dignity of the person is made in God's image. That's revealed to us by reason in Scripture. I mean, it's just clear as a bell. Of course, Dignitatis Humanae also says it doesn't change any church teaching. And so Pink stre- will stress that part um, fairly. Um, but, um, yeah, you've, you've got to change too many minds in the Catholic Church for this to happen anytime soon. So, I mean, take, for instance, if you want integralism, you've got to get an integralist pope. How many integralist bishops are there right now that would vote for an integralist pope? 
And notice those are two separate questions. You need integralist bishops, and then you need them to care about integralism so much, that's what they prioritize. You don't just need that. You need integralist cardinals. Yes, right. <laughs> so you've got 5,600 bishops. They've got to be cardinals. The cardinals have to vote for an integralist pope. And there are no openly integralist bishops. It, it, I've been told some integralists have tried to make the argument that maybe five or six are sympathetic. Um, but, you know, you've got to get 5,600. They're from all over the world. The idea that massive numbers of them are just going to defect within a, gen- a couple of generations, I think, is extremely far-fetched. So, how? I mean, I think with, with what you told me earlier about there's a sort of apocalyptic understanding. They that liberalism are, yep. will unwrap. So there's a sense in which they don't need to build institutions. This is what they They don't think. need to build um, any sort of mass constituency. They just have to be able to colonize the ruins of the liberal imperium. Just yeah. like the church took over things like Roman dioceses were Roman imperial jurisdictions, the church has dioceses. Pontifex Maximus was the title of Caesar. It's the title of the pope. You know, the pope's Twitter handle is that Pontifex. Um, it, in the same, I think they see this, is the Catholic church expanded um, into the ruins of the Roman Empire to provide the necessary goods and services that the, that the empire could no longer provide. And I think they very much think that the liberal imperium will collapse. It will collapse in the United States. And that if they have created a group of people that can really see liberalism for what it is, it's a group of kind of ascetic fanatics that can't help, help they can't but help themselves to liberate and liberate and liberate until they uh, have nothing else to liberate. Um, so yeah, I think the American integralists have this sort of fiercely anti-liberal project of building a counter-elite that will take over the collapsed liberal imperium. But I want to make very clear that most of the book is not about that. It's about the ideas. It's about um, the ideal theory. It's a lot of it's engaging the British integralists in some detail. So I think people coming to the book, I do explain where like the American integralist movement came from. I give its history. I talk about its major figures. I talk about their transition strategy. Um, but that's mostly left to the historical chapter, chapter two, and then the critique of the transition strategy in chapter four. Most of the book is getting is, is a deep dive into the kind of integralist proposal as such, the ideal, and then showing how it has continuities with other religious anti-liberalisms and the ideals articulated by contemporary religious anti-liberal intellectuals. So having done a deep dive across many religious anti-liberalisms. Well, three, but three. yeah. <laughs> well, three is many. Yeah, 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 <laughs> it's yeah, not yeah. a couple. Well, yeah. I mean, it could, it could, they're so rich, it just takes yeah. so long to really get a grasp. And, yeah. th- and there and there are there are incredibly sophisticated arguments that I am I am always in awe of your generosity to. Oh. I would <laughs> I could not always uh, muster um, the generosity and charity you give to many of these arguments, but I also think that's essential to keep it, taking them seriously. Yes, and to serious engagement as you look forward to. Maybe developing a political theology response of your own that, um, if not a defense of liberalism, is consonant with liberalism in ways that these various religious anti-liberalisms aren't. What you know? What's what's the vision? What's the political theological vision that you get excited about? Not to examine as an intellectual puzzle box to explain to help people come to terms with and think through, but but you know, what's that ideal vision of your own that you're trying to work th- towards in your in your constructive work in in political theology? Well, um, you know, I'm relatively new to it. I have um, in terms of positive political theology. I've been thinking about it for a while. But writing on it, I said, I'm going to wait till I'm 40 and have done a bunch of other stuff and then launch into this totally, you know, idiosyncratic uh, thing. Right now, I'm planning three books, a trilogy, um, following the old scholastic uh, ancient practice of uh, eternal law, natural law, positive law, in terms of laying out the kind of political and institutional framework of a, a, of a Christian society. Um, the essence of the project is to try to take on what I regard as the unique insights of modern and even postmodern uh, political thought, but organizing those insights into a sort of traditionally Christian um, 
political framework or political methodology. They're, what I see essentially that the moderns understand is because they sort of put God to the side, they still care a lot about the personal. They still really focused on, for instance, like social contract theory about a kind of union between people or union within society, if you look at idealist uh, political thought, for instance. And um, I think they've had some insights about uh, the right ways for human beings to relate to one another on free and equal terms that have not been fully built into Christian political thought. Um, but at the same time, we want a civilization that's, that's theocentric, right, that's based around God and Jesus Christ. So, so the question is, how do we take what we've learned um, from modernity about freedom, equality, and, and free institutions um, and, and build that in the, it, to some degree at the ground floor of a theocentric worldview. And my key, the key notion that I'll use to sort of unlock or to, to, to break open the possibility for a synthesis is the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and so it's going to be a Trinity-focused uh, political theology because what you have in God is not just God as, say, goodness or the divine commander or the lawmaker, but God as an interpersonal being. And to say that built within the doctrine of the Trinity is uh, the foundation um, for building modern insights about the interpersonal in uh, to Christian political thought. Now, that's at a, explaining things at an extremely high level. But the thing to expect is a kind of uh, Trinitarian model of Christian civilization. Can't say more than that, though. Well, we look forward to it. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. Um, it was a blast, as usual. We're excited for this book, and, and I'm, I'm even more excited for the next three. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again. Yeah, thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.